This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast, part of the Seneca Network from the China Project. For everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you came to the right place. I am your host, Jared Turner, longtime resident of China, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Graded Reader Series, and I doubt, therefore, I may be. My co-host is John Passon, co-founder of Mandarin Companion, founder of All Set Learning, the Chinese Grammar Wiki, Sinosplice.com, and told me they're changing the English name of China State Media Channel to That's What She Said. Does a musical background make you better at Chinese? Believe it or not, there is research on this very subject that John and I are going to delve into. Guest interviews with Murray James Morrison, jazz musician, composer, and professor at NYU Shanghai. Let's get to it. Hey guys, this is Jared Turner coming at you from Utah in the United States. Hey everybody out there! I am in Shanghai, China. My name is John Pazden. How's it going, John? Before we get going today, we do need to mention that we are part of the Seneca Podcast Network、uh, through Sub China, but Sub China is changing their name. Why would they do that? Well, I, I think it's a good change. They're they're changing the name to the China Project. Okay, that sounds a bit more mature and serious, right? Yeah, definitely. Because I mean, they are a serious and mature organization. That they're kind of some a lot of thought leaders. Uh, among China watchers, and you know, news about the geopolitical aspects of the U.S.-China relation, and well, not just U.S.-China, but the global、uh, China relation. So,、uh, yeah, you can go and check it out now. It's changing as of September first to the China Project. So, we'll, if you've noticed in the intro to the podcast, we've mentioned that, and we'll be continue to、uh, now be calling it the China Project. Yeah, so hopefully that's not too confusing. But I think once you get used to it, you'll find that it fits、uh, what they do a lot better. And speaking of the China Project, we do have a special guest with us here at the beginning of our podcast.、Uh, we'd like to welcome Kaiser Guo joining us. Hey, Kaiser! So you're our Seneca Network podcast neighbor. Welcome. <laughs> I'm your boss, man. Don't forget it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Well,、uh, Kaiser, we're bringing you on because we have a listener question that we think might be best suited for you. So this comes from Andy Walker, and he's concerned a little bit about、uh, the growing concern about China, its government issues relating to you know territorial claims, human rights, Hong Kong, and potential armed conflict with Taiwan. So here's his question. He says, "On paper, there's many fair criticisms to make about the Chinese government. Do you see these as concerns for future Chinese learners who may be individual schools or communities?" I feel in the states there's a combination of paranoia and honest concern about China. So, Kaiser, we thought that you might be best to answer this,、uh, since you are kind of、uh, much more focused on these issues. So, we'd love love to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, I really like the way that Andy phrased that. I think that、um, he puts his finger on something really essential here, which is this combination of paranoia and and honest concern, which I've also noted. I think we need to recognize why the honest concern part. Is so resonant right now in so many Anglophone countries, especially here in the United States and in Australia, where I imagine it is that Andy's writing from. It's you know not surprising that we experience quite a bit of psychological discomfiture at China's rise. Right,、uh, suddenly we have this multi-dimensional peer competitor where none really existed ever before, and it's challenging a lot of the fundamental sort of axiomatic beliefs we've had about ourselves. Uh, specifically, you know, the United States as an exceptional nation and, and so forth, and、uh, as it's done that,、uh, we're experiencing a, a real kind of anxiety in the society about being surpassed. I mean, we're not—it's not out in the open, but it's certainly felt、uh, within a lot of people. And one of the things that's doing to us is making us more sensitive to and aware of, and, and maybe、mm-hmm. uh, tends to make us amplify things that China does that. Really do bother us, but maybe under other circumstances wouldn't register quite so much. You know, a lot of the human rights violations that we're talking about, we've seen similar things happening in other parts of the world.、Uh, maybe not on precisely the same scale,、uh, but our reaction to it seems to be really quite amplified. And I think that we need to be honest with ourselves and recognize that part of that. Is because we have this baseline psychological discomfiture at China's rise to begin with. Now that doesn't mean that what China is doing is okay, but it's really sort of hard to, to tease apart what is the the honest concern and what is just sort of a result of this psychological discomfort that we're experiencing. Wow, that's really insightful, Kaiser. I appreciate that. 
I think that this is not the right show to talk about all of these issues, but we do have other shows. If you're really interested in exploring this and other questions about U.S.-China relations, about China's new place in the world, about uh, you know what's happening domestically in Chinese politics, uh, what's happening in Xinjiang, uh, uh, the, the Taiwan con- conflict, and, and everything else, uh, check out our flagship show, Seneca, and other shows in, in the network like the China in Africa podcast, uh, which also addresses a lot of this stuff. And uh, I have to plug that definitely, Kaiser. I listen to Cynic Podcast. Insanely insightful. You have amazing guests on there. And I love that, that China in Africa podcast, too. It's mind-blowing. It's like it, uh, it's, we don't really think about that often, but you know, everything that China's doing there in, in Africa is, is really interesting. Yeah. So they've spun off another show. Uh, which is also on our network. It's called the China Global South podcast. So check that out as well, because that also explores you know Latin America, Southeast Asia, South Asia, uh, the Middle East and North Africa, you know the the rest of the developing world. And we'll put links in the show notes. Fantastic. Well, Kaiser, we really appreciate you jumping in, taking one of these questions. And uh, guys, if you want to learn more and uh, about this, go check out thechinaproject.com. All right. All right, we do have one listener review, and we have a listener question. So I'll read the review real quick, and John, maybe you can do the question. So um, our review comes from Chris L. Hum, uh, and it looks like he's in Taiwan. He says, I've been self-studying Chinese for a number of years here in China. This podcast has finally put my experiences into words. If you're a newcomer to Chinese or just someone who likes to self-study, these guys give amazing advice, which will save you time, money, and effort in the long run. Keep on going, Chris. Hey, thanks, Chris. We really appreciate that, and we hope uh, other people get that same value out of this that you do. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Okay, this next one um, is a question. So he says, hey, guys, my name is Jonah. I live in San Francisco, California, and I've been learning Chinese for about five months. Your podcast is fantastic, and the graded readers are great, too. I've got a question that maybe you could address on the podcast. How do you express emotion in spoken Chinese? With English, we use tones mostly to express emotions, but with Chinese, of course, tones are needed to express meaning. I have a feeling the answer is that in spoken Chinese, you use tones for both meaning and emotion, but how do you not conflate the two? Apologies if you've already addressed this. I haven't listened to every episode yet. Well, that's a fantastic question. Okay, yeah, and to keep things clear, let's talk about the uh, the intonation of a sentence. We'll call that intonation, going up and down with emotion or stress, things you want to emphasize. And then the individual syllables having tones in Chinese, we'll call those tones, right? So Chinese does have intonation as well as tones, and we think of English as having intonation but not so much tones. Something like that. Right, and so the answer to your question is kind of what you you, you suspected, but... The important thing that learners need to know is you should focus on tones first and foremost. If you focus on intonation instead of tones, people won't understand you. If you focus on tones and get them kind of right and you kind of screw up the intonation, they might understand you. You have hope, right? So um, adding in intonation to your Chinese is a little bit advanced and it's something that you want to do later. You got to get the tones right first. Definitely. John, I also like to mention you know, in answer to Jonah's question here is is that you know we're talking about expressing emotion in Chinese and, and tones and stuff, but you know in English and in Chinese, uh, in, I guess any native language also will also express emotion or feeling not just with tones but oftentimes volume or how fast we're speaking or slowly we're speaking and we are angry or whatever like that. So uh, I just like to point that out that that that's also another way that. Uh, that is expressed in Chinese is, and of course in English with, you know, speed and, and, and volume. Well, here's a crazy idea. If you're focusing on tones and you're afraid that the emotion is not getting through in your speech, do exaggerated facial expressions and Italian style hand gestures. You know, that'll <laughs> help get your, your message across too. Brilliant idea, John. All right. It's linguistics. All right. So let's get on to today's topic, shall we? All right, John. Now, before we kick into this today, I got to ask you, John, do you have any musical talents? Eh, not really anything worth bragging about, that's for sure. I mean, bragging, have you ever taken an instrument, you know, studied one, or can you play anything? Yeah, some piano. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Well, for reference, I, I play guitar, uh, harmonica, and I sing and uh, yeah, that's about it. But uh, but yeah, so I've got a bit of a musical background, and and the topic of this 
uh, discussion today is, does having a musical background help you with Chinese? Right. So there's actually a paper on this very topic. It's called Identification of Mandarin Tones by English-Speaking Musicians and Non-Musicians. So the idea is these people have never learned Chinese. They have no background in Chinese or tonal languages. And they're kind of presented with these tones. These are the tones in Mandarin. And then the idea is if you're a musician, is it easier or harder than if you're not a musician? So I'll break it down here, uh, how they set this up. So this was at a university in Ohio. They got 36 English-speaking musicians from a the, from the music department there. They were doing different um, you know, degrees in music. And 36 students who have no musical background. And of these combined uh, people in the study, no one had any exposure or experience with learning Mandarin or any other tonal language for that effect. In preparation for this study, what they did is they had some native speakers say words in Chinese with different tones. And they took these different samples and they actually modified them, John. This was a little bit curious, right? So they took like, you could say like zhuang, right? But they modified some of these as well for variations in the experiment. And exactly how did they do that, John? So they silenced like the middle of the syllable or they silenced the middle of the syllable and the rest of the syllable. So they they get into more detail in the paper. We're not going to go into that right now. But um, there are reasons to believe that giving the whole syllable provided too many clues so that they removed some of that as part of the experiment to see, you know, for real, uh, how much is their musical uh, ability affecting their ability to recognize these tones. So what they did then is they brought these test subjects into a a sound-treated room uh, and they gave them just some very basic like instruction on Chinese. They pretty much said, hey, there's four tones in Chinese, you know, ma, 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 ma. And they wrote out the tone markers on a board and they had a keyboard there and it had four buttons on it and one had each tone on it. Now, they didn't actually put the numbers of the tone. We're used to maybe saying you know, first, second, third, fourth tone. They'd try not to confuse it. And they actually had the tone markers like a high or dropping the third tone, whatever it is, on the four uh, keys. Um, they explained to them, you know, that what they wanted them to do is listen to this sound sample of someone speaking uh, these syllables in Chinese and see if you can uh, determine what tone is being expressed uh, in that speech. And they would press the appropriate button. Yep, and so they got plenty of data, and they were able to get some pretty cool results from this data as well. So what do you think, John? Do you think these music majors, these people studying music? Oh, and I should specify that they did verify that every one of these people with a music background, they can play an instrument. They, they have proficiency in a musical instrument. Okay. So, Oh, oh and not only that, but th- one thing they did, which I thought was kind of cool, is they got their musicians first, and then they got someone who matched in both uh, sex and age to the musician who was not a musician. So, um, you know, the numbers lined up exactly for age and sex for the population, you know, doing the experiment. All right, John, so what does your gut tell you about the results? Do you think the people with musical background were able to more correctly identify tones in Chinese or not? Yeah, I was actually not really sure what to expect. I expected it to be either roughly the same or that the musicians would have a slight edge. Because remember, it's not like they're becoming fluent in Mandarin in 10 days or anything. They're just identifying the tones of single syllables without even knowing what they mean. I think it's also good to keep in mind that you think just the random guessing, if you know, you're always picking first tone or whatever, I mean, rolling a four-sided dice, you know, the random chance of success would be 25% accuracy in, in guessing these tones. All right, well, here's what happened. Here's what the results of, of this uh, study came out to be, is that overall accuracy was higher for the musicians uh, when compared to people without a musical background. And the musicians were quicker uh, about getting those more accurate results. Their response time was, was faster. That's right. So overall, the accuracy was about 51% for musicians, whereas non-musicians, it was 36%. 
And you're right that musicians seem to have a slightly faster response time. It actually wasn't statistically significant. I mean, we're talking like microseconds, uh, but you know, they, they, there seemed to be a little bit of uh, improved uh, ability to you know, perceive it faster. But of those, I think, John, w- when we dig into this a little bit, is that they found out that while the, the most easily discerned tones was the first tone, so the high tone, you know, ma, right? that followed by the second tone and then the fourth tone. And the hardest tone seemed to be the third tone. Yeah, and it's the most complex, but it's also the one that I have definitely noticed over the years gives learners the biggest problem. It's just it's just harder to get a handle on. Uh, normally, I think of that in terms of making the third tone correctly and consistently, but um, clearly this experiment shows that it's also kind of hard to to recognize compared to the other three. Definitely. And even more interesting, um, when they went on to the other types of the uh, audio samples that they were giving the participants to listen to, like we had, we mentioned earlier, they uh, had some where they took out like kind of the middle of the pronunciation or they only, they took out the last half of it, things like that. So you only got the front end. Um, accuracy decreased. I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? If you're just kind of listening and now you have less to listen to, it's going to be a little bit harder to uh, differentiate what's going on. And at that last part where they're just only gave you like the very first part of it, it was almost a, a, about on par with guessing, a 25% accuracy. Okay, so the experiment shows that it is a little bit easier for musicians to recognize correctly the tones of individual syllables in Mandarin Chinese. Now the question is, so what? Does, does this matter to our listeners? Does this matter to someone who wants to learn Chinese or if they're thinking about studying Chinese? That's a good question, John. I mean, uh, what, what what's your answer to that? Well, I would say no, not really. It doesn't really matter because it's not like <laughs> musicians are sitting around going, so I want to learn a foreign language, but what language does my musical ability give me an edge on? I mean, no one's saying that. And no, no one chooses Chinese because it's the easy language to learn or because they have a slight edge on the rest of the population, even though they know for sure that it's not an easy language to learn, right? That's right. That's right. And, you know, something on this I thought was very helpful is while it seemed like having a musical background gave people an edge on maybe able to discern tones and maybe like hear them. Um, this was also an isolation, right? You, you got just like this, hey, you're just listening to one thing, it's clear, and you're like, oh, I'm focusing on it. It's a little bit different when you're trying to passively understand it because like when you're having a conversation, you know, with, uh, well, in Chinese, native speaker or not, uh, you're not necessarily focusing on every single like tone discrimination. You kind of, you know, get the whole the whole you know, caboodle right, right in your brain at the same time. And it's not easy to fully, you know, analyze all that stuff. Right. So I think it's quite likely that musicians have the advantage for these single syllable, you know, tests, but the, the advantage probably shrinks the longer the, the sample of audio is. And I don't think they have a huge advantage when it comes to actually speaking Mandarin with correct tones, because it's not really the same as singing or playing an instrument, right? It's still a pretty different, you know, process trying to speak with tones. So um, if you're a musician and you've been debating, you know, do I want to learn Chinese? Uh, Maybe this will be a little bit of good news that will help push you to give it a shot. But um, it shouldn't be the deciding factor if you're not musical, especially, right? That's right. That's right. And I think we'll give real quick a baseline on this. And I think what's good to note is they did provide some information on some other studies that uh, analyzed this same type of a thing with native speakers and also people who have been learning Chinese for a number of years. Now, I think it was great for a baseline. A baseline here for native speakers, uh, they were able to 97% accurately uh, identify the tone. Okay, that's great. Uh, when they had like shorter samples like uh, of the tone and of the pronunciation, they were 86%. So yeah, of course that goes down. You have less information, probably not going to get uh, as, as high as accuracy. But let's look at this for uh, native English speakers who had one to three years of Mandarin experience. They achieved an accuracy of 76%. And in contrast, music majors were able to, you know, correctly identify the tone 51% of the time. So, I mean, really that shows with some deliberate practice, some education. uh, Yeah, I think that difference can be made up pretty quickly. 
But but this paper goes back to 2008. Uh, there has been other research done, um, but this was a good place to start on this topic. So if you guys are interested in this, let us know. Um, this paper was by Professor Chaoyang Li. It's called Identification of Mandarin Tones by English-Speaking Musicians and Non-Musicians. And we will have a link to that in the show notes of this podcast. Definitely. So, hey, you got a musical background? Great. That can definitely help you. It can give you a little bit of an advantage. But, of course, as with anything, once you really get into it, some of those advantages might, you know, disappear with, uh, with more deliberate effort. And, you know, it's one of those things. Sometimes you get a, a little bit, you can get ahead. But don't be like the tortoise and the hare, right? You know, the, 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 the hare thinks, oh, I'm so fast. And so he takes a break, and, but the tortoise ends up passing him on. So I think that's, that's quite one of the lessons here is that, hey, even though it might give you an advantage, I wouldn't totally lean on that forever because uh, you're still going to need a lot of practice and you're going to need a lot of uh, study to really progress in your Mandarin skills and get to the point where you want them to be. Bottom line, musician or not, you can learn Chinese. Definitely can learn Chinese. All right, now it's time for a word from our sponsor. And today our sponsor is Mandarin Companion Chinese Graded Readers. That's right, and today we are talking about our brand new book. It's finally come out, John. Sherlock Holmes and a Scandal in Shanghai. This is based off of the classic Sherlock Holmes story, A Scandal in Bohemia, except we adapted this one to 1920 Shanghai. And the character you may know from one of our other books, which is also, you know, a Sherlock Holmes adapted story, a level one called The Curly Haired Company. Uh, so same characters, same setting, same rough time frame. But this one's a level two with another classic story. That's right. And this one, it's, it's a real fun story. We have this one involves the international community of the 1920 Shanghai and a Chinese movie actress uh, involving real historical figures from the time period. We, we did a, quite a bit of research and brought in some other people who had a lot more knowledge in this area. And we reconstructed a really cool story. I think you could say this one is historical fiction. Would that be correct? I think that would be a good way to put it. Lots of genres in there. Check it out. So it's Sherlock Holmes and a Scandal in Shanghai. You can go out and get it today. You can find it on Amazon. And uh, we are in the process of getting the ebooks out, but the print book is available, and it's a great story. Go out there and get it today. Manor Companion, level 2, 450 basic characters, graded reader. Enjoy. <laughs> All right, now it's time for rants and raves. John, what do you have for us today? Do you have a rant or do you have a rave? I have a rave. Uh, but I got to say, it's been, I like to be positive. I have more raves than rants go, bumping around in my head all the time. But um, I keep just thinking of food and then I'm like, man, I must have talked about that food before. Um, so I'm trying to go off in a totally different direction. And so today I finally thought of one, which um, is a service I used recently, which I thought was really cool and also feels very Chinese. And it's it's uh, tailor-made clothing. And so a lot of people come to Shanghai or maybe other parts of China. They go to the fabric market. They get clothes made, and they think it's really cheap. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. <laughs> um, but actually, if you live here and you can find like a good tailor who's not a ripoff, another service mm -hmm. you can get, which is pretty cool, is they can actually come to your home and measure you, bring the clothing, bring the fabric that you can choose. Wow. Like you don't even have to go to the fabric market. And it sounds super bourgeois, you know, whatever, like to do this, but it's actually not very expensive either. So uh, stuff like this in China is uh, pretty impressive. And I'm, I've been in China for a while, over 20 years, and I just started this, uh, you know, tailor-made clothing they come to your home thing and it uh feels kind of cool that is definitely cool and i i do say john is that i always get my suits and dress shirts and slacks and stuff made there in china i've got a, got a tailor to go to but having them come to your house not too shabby not too shabby thanks china making me look better all right so jared you got rant or rave I got a rave today, and I, I got to admit, it's a little self-serving, but I, I'm excited about it. Uh, I'm oh raving about our new Manor Companion books. Uh, now, we just talked about, you know, Scandal in Shanghai, our new level two book. But if you 
haven't noticed, we have rebranded our entire library of books. So we've it's a whole new design. We've gone through, we've redone all the, renovated the guts of everything, and it's everything's cool and looking new. New logo. Yeah, it looks a lot cleaner, a lot more professional, um, and uh, we're happy to be releasing a new book under the new logo, but also all the old books being re-released. Uh, it was a huge project that we finally got done. Yeah, well, it, 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 there's some final details on that with the ebooks, but like the print books are all done, and the ebooks are going to be rolling out real soon. And so that's been really exciting. I mean, this has been over a year we've been working on this, and it's kind of exciting what we've got coming up in the future. You know, or we've got more plans and ideas and things we'd like to do with uh, our books and everything. So kind of exciting. <laughs> Just said that like three times in a row. I know. So it's kind of exciting, John, right? Kind of exciting. You might call it kind of exciting. All right. Kind of excited. Here, here's my certificate of redundancy certificate, right? All right. Well, I'm excited for this interview. So let's cut to that exciting interview. My name is Murray James Morrison. I'm a musician, a saxophonist, composer. I work for NYU here in Shanghai teaching music and I guess have been an active part of the Shanghai jazz scene for many years. While Murray was waiting a few moments before our interview, I logged into our recording platform to find him practicing his tenor saxophone. When it comes to jazz, he's the real deal. However, Murray's story is an example of how musical talent can influence your Chinese skills both directly and indirectly. Stay with us. Hey, Murray, why did you start learning Chinese? I've always been interested in languages from the time I was quite young. I was in French immersion in Canada. And then in high school, I started studying Spanish just for fun because it was interesting. My wife is Chinese. We met at a graduate school party at Rutgers University. And when we started dating, I thought it would be kind of fun to, you know, like learn a little bit of the language. And so I started out by getting like some textbooks. Had you married your now wife or were you dating her when you decided to learn? No, we were just dating at the time. It was pretty early on, actually. It was just to be cute. Like I wasn't serious about it at all. Oh. No, I don't mean the relationship. I mean the language, <laughs> right? Why did that attract you, though? Many people, hey, it's just too hard or something. They, they decided to give up or something. But what was the difficulty about it that attracted you? Well, okay, so at first I wasn't a super serious learner, just like the basic phrases like hello, you know, and then like I still couldn't speak, right? So like the very first time I went to China, like I had the experience that many foreigners do, which is all this Chinese that I learned from books was like that people didn't understand what I was saying and I had a hard time understanding what people were saying. Like it was very humbling, but just the idea that I could like read characters when I realized that I could look at these things that were so different from what I grew up with and actually make some sense out of them. I just love that feeling. Well, I'm also curious to know about your, at this point, girlfriend, wife. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, yeah, we're married. Yeah, yeah. 11 she years. obviously speaks Chinese, but was she there ever to help you? Did you ever have the opportunity to practice? Now, I'm curious about this because I know this dynamic almost seems different for many different couples right? What language they use and how much your significant other actually helps you in your language learning. So from the time we met until today, her English has been much better than my Chinese. I mean, at first I would kind of like throw some questions to her, but then, you know, it became evident as the relationship grew serious that the thing that we had was not about her being my language mm. tutor. At some point I became interested in learning, you know, Chinese for its own sake. Although I have to say, you know, when I lived in Citron for the very first time, so I was living with her and her parents were around a lot, and I was working for the Citron Music Conservatory. And of course, there are foreigners in Chengdu, but most of the musicians and most of the bands that I worked with were Chinese. All my students were Chinese. My coworkers and my bosses were Chinese. And then I would come home after a long day to a Chinese family. And so... In this respect, living in Chengdu was quite different from being here in Shanghai. It was just like the perfect language immersion environment. What prompted that decision to move to Chengdu? And, you know, how did that all come about? I was, at the time, a doctoral student and was coming off a stipend that I had while I was doing my coursework. This was in New York City. 
didn't have a lot of extra money and eventually came to realize that I could do research and write my dissertation from any city. At the time, my wife, who was then my fiance, was in China, and I visited her and I liked it. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll try and complete my doctoral studies here. Started playing music with the people there, and then one of the musicians I was working with frequently had me come in to do some master classes at the conservatory, which led, I think, within a year or two, a job offer. So. Wow, that's amazing. You know, language divides between our cultures, but also music. I can imagine there's some commonalities in music, but what was that experience like? When I first went to Chengdu, my Chinese was bad, right? And I was spending a lot of time with other Chinese musicians, and I wanted to talk about music in Chinese. And so I went to the conservatory bookstore, found a like freshman music fundamentals textbook in Chinese, basically what the first year students at the conservatory are learning. And the book is like, hey, guess what? Like, this is a staff. This is a note. And of course, we have words for every one of these things in English, and those same things exist in Chinese. And I read it very, very slowly. But when I came out on the other side, when I just knew tons of like music-related terminology, and even now, I can't really talk about like aerospace <laughs> engineering in my own native yeah. tongue, you know, but I certainly can't in Chinese. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't even like share my stupid opinions on politics or whatever in Chinese that intelligently. But I can talk about music pretty well. In my experience, certainly in Sichuan, but also in Shanghai, I spent a lot of time speaking in Chinese and being in, you know, WeChat groups or communicating with agents or, you know, with club owners. And a lot of those communications are in Chinese. And I, I guess I kind of take it for granted at this point. But, you know, if I couldn't speak the language, then it would be a slightly different experience. I'm living in Shanghai and, you know, pretty much all of the foreigners, foreign musicians in town have some level of Chinese. But this city's far more forgiving when it comes to foreigners and language speaking ability, at least for like my industry. If you want to have a conversation with a Chinese musician about like your favorite albums or musicians or like why this means so much to you, this certain kind of music or education situations where you have to talk about music in Chinese, having an increased range of expression in the language just opens up so much. And also makes the whole thing far more enjoyable and fulfilling. Murray, maybe you could tell me about some of the opportunities you had to use your music skills and your Chinese here in China. Just generally, I can say I find life here to be extremely dynamic. The place I grew up is pretty quiet and, the, you know, people are friendly, but there aren't that many of them. And there's like a lot of planes you know, you're from yeah, Utah, so yeah. you know what it's like to live around nature. <laughs> I have mountains, too. And the people are cool. You know, but they're a bit incurious, I mm. would think. The rhythm of life is fairly consistent. I come from a musical family. My dad had a band with his brothers, and he was into, like, British cool. rock. So, like, <laughs> the Beatles and Eric Clapton, that sort of stuff. And my mom was, like, 50s and 60s soul in Motown. So I kind of grew up in that and eventually went to jazz school. And if you know anything about the environment in these jazz schools, they're just so jazz, like all of the time. They're just super <laughs> intensely focused on different subgenres of jazz music. I was living in New York where the median playing ability in the situations I found myself in was quite mm -hmm. high. Mm -hmm. And I ended up in Chengdu where it wasn't the case. Jazz at the time in Chengdu was like very new. And jazz, like many other things in China is developing like extraordinarily quickly. So like I started working with singers who had no background mm. in jazz and then realizing as this kind of died in the wool jazzer, you know, that I couldn't really collaborate with them successfully because I spent too much time in school and not enough time on stage. I had certain things that I could do. So I have this theory and analysis background and I took all these arranging classes and that eventually led to an opportunity to join a pretty popular like ska and reggae band, a Chinese oh, really? band. It was like trumpet and three saxophones. Yeah. Ska music, right? And we just played like large festivals. Really? Recorded an album. Yeah, the band is called The Trouble. You can look cool. them up. A Chinese ska band, The Trouble. <laughs> yeah, the Chinese name is uh, Chaobu. Ah, nice. 
great musicians, great songwriting, and playing to like far larger crowds than I had ever experienced as a swing player in northern Alberta. So that certainly was a trip. While I was living in Chengdu, I would frequently travel to Shanghai and was surprised at the kind of stylistic range of acts that I would hear in the city at that time. Of course, Shanghai was at that time kind of a hub early to mid parts of like the 2010s. Mm-hmm. It seemed like there was so much happening in the city. There was also a vibe that things were very open. There were many Chinese and foreign musicians that had either been there right at the beginning or close to the beginning of like the jazz scene in Shanghai. I would come and just check out everything that was going on and stay out in various clubs until 3 a.m. in the morning, night after night. You know, there is something to be said when you've got a city of 24 million people, right? (laughs) You just get a higher quantity of musicians, and I can imagine a lot more of that diversity in some of these places. It's true. Like, everything in China is, in part, a function of just the population. The way I like to think about the jazz scene here in Shanghai is that the number of serious players are far fewer than you would expect, given the population of the country. I'll travel to, like, other cities, speak with the jazz musicians in pretty much every second-tier, third-tier city. Like, there are people who can play. There's a couple of musicians who can play on each instrument, and they're always like, oh, you're from Shanghai. There's so much great stuff happening there. And I think in their mind, sometimes Chinese musicians and foreign musicians in these cities think incorrectly that we just have like a million amazing musicians here in Shanghai. (laughs) And from my perspective, like the number of really serious players is far fewer than that. And if you are serious, you can meet most of the people who are doing this thing seriously pretty quickly. Everyone's connected, you know. I find it much easier to network here among Chinese and foreign musicians than I ever did in New York, you know. My Chinese is good by foreign standards in China, but it's not that good. Like, I can read in Chinese, which is pretty cool. Like, I can read a novel, so that's impressive. And I find it easy to talk to people. Living in China, it's a fairly low bar. Since moving to Shanghai, I find that when you don't have to speak Chinese or read Chinese and your environment is more forgiving, sometimes it could be a bit more difficult to, you know, sustain that level of immersion. You're teaching now at NYU. That's an English school. You're in Shanghai. There's a little more English happening there. And it sounds like you said reading is one of those ways that you need to carve out time so that it helps you to keep your Chinese up. How does that help your Chinese improve but also maintain? If you're literate, you're just going to go much farther with any language, even your own language, right? So there are certain kinds of like low-frequency words that you're far less likely to encounter in a spoken context than in a written one. You just have access to far more ideas if you can read. One thing that I did write, actually, very early on, and this is actually kind of because of this series, New Practical Chinese Reader, which it kind of feeds it to you piecemeal, and there's a heavy emphasis on reading and writing characters right from the first lesson. Mm. It had tapes in it, which I listened to carefully, but every sound that I would hear, I would also like learn the character at the same time. And when I moved to Chengdu, I kept that habit going. So if I would see a character that I didn't know how to pronounce, I would ask someone, or you know, eventually when I could, I would just use like monolingual dictionaries to kind of look it up myself, right? But I would also do the reverse. So when somebody would say a character I didn't know or say a word, then I would say, like, how do I write that? Like, what is the character for that? When you hear someone's name, right, for people who are maybe intermediate level of Chinese or above, you hear somebody's name and then you can just kind of tease out what it is by breaking the character into like various components, right? That's one of the ways that Chinese people describe what their names look like just by visually describing the various parts of the character. And so what that meant is, as my Chinese improved, anything I could say, I could read. I couldn't always write it by hand. Like, obviously, that lags way far behind. That's a different skill. That's true for everybody, even native speakers, right? Anything that I heard, if you showed it to me written down, I could also read it. And I think that's made me a more comprehensive and well-rounded language learner. And it certainly helped me out a lot. There are a number of people that I work with that actually speak okay, 
Like in some cases, their tones are better than mine, Mm -hmm. you know, but they're limited because they can't read. And it doesn't show when you're just describing the weather or asking what time an event is. But when you go a bit deeper than that, then those differences start to show. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And sometimes people will ask me that question, like, hey, do I really need to learn to read Chinese? And I ask the question, well, how far does illiteracy get you in society? And, And it has its limits. This podcast is for Mandarin Companion, right? It's kind of our sponsor behind it, but yeah. And they produce books, right? Like with limited numbers of Chinese characters. Yeah, graded readers. Oh, graded readers, yeah. So that's great. So I'm totally down with that. I actually probably would have benefited from something like that earlier on instead of like a beginner music theory textbook that was for native speakers and it took me forever. Well, I should also say in passing, it was far more difficult than I was ready for at the time. And I think many people would have like given up. But one thing that helped me get through it is I was so interested in the material and I had a good understanding of the material, right? Mm -hmm. So like I was doing a doctoral degree that required a lot of theory and analysis And I was learning like the first words that a child would learn if they're picking up the piano. So it's like things that I already understood well in my own tongue, but just didn't know what its corollary was in this new language I was learning. Despite everything I just said, which is like, I'm totally for written language. And I think it's good to be able to be able to read, obviously, like (laughs) I'm pro-literacy. I'm for reading, okay? I'm for reading and education and books and whatnot. But sometimes I think like the written world is kind of different from the aural, the A-U-R-A-L mm-hmm. world. This is a subject where I explore a lot in this course I teach at NYU Shanghai called 20th Century Music and Its Meanings. And the whole course is about like how music changed after the advent of sound mm. recording. And it turned out that in the 20th century, music, like many other things in the 20th century around the world, just changed like radically. In some cases, like unrecognizably. It's technologies like sound recording or the written word or the printing press that really do like kind of create new sorts of worlds. For me, like literature is like really powerful. Like if I have a good book, it can be a pretty powerful experience. But the experience of being with a book, I think has a, it's a kind of closed system. It's all visual feedback and stimuli. And I think there's a sense in which we live in a very hyper like visual world, like a world that's governed by the eye, I think. Far more so than like ancient cultures, which I think were governed by like smells and tastes in ways that we are less so now. People could watch cooking shows like with no sound and be satisfied. As much as I love like reading, as a musician, I'm always like aware of the fact that there's a certain like set of symbols and like symbolic communication that is seen as more important. Like I know in musical contexts, I'm suspicious of musicians who focus on like reading sheet music to the detriment of relying on their ears to make more intuitive or collaborative sets of musical decisions. And so sometimes I think about that in a language environment too. Certainly if I had to be like blind or deaf, like I would be like blind, right? (laughs) Just to just pluck out my eyes, right? I don't need them. Oh, that's for me. I mean, <laughs> what am I going to do? Not hear things? Yeah. <laughs> Insane. But I would be like suspicious of somebody who was only interested in like the written yeah. word to the detriment of what the language sounds like. I think you definitely have a point there. And reading literacy is largely input, right? We have now verbal communication output or just on the oral level, right? There's going to be a lot more interaction there as part of listening and speaking. So you have a lot more two-way communication, whereas written can be largely in the input. And you can type and stuff, but your ability to do that is limited. It's a little bit slower, especially at the beginning. Yeah, the immediacy is the thing, right? There's this great quote by like Lacan, which is something like, the ear is the only human orifice that can't be stopped. You know, you can hmm. you can put your hands to your ears to block out the sounds of the world, but you can't close them like you can your eyes hmm. or your mouth, you know. Sounds can travel like long distances very quickly, like the sound of like approaching war drums just in a moment they're like upon you, <laughs> announcing your impending demise. Because sounds are like kind of thrown It affects the way that we communicate. I think sound is in some ways a more inherently collaborative art form, and it certainly is, as you said, more immediate. Yeah, I agree with you. Well, if you could go back 
And if you could change one thing about your whole language learning journey, what would you do differently or what would you change and why? I just would have worked harder. I think many things that are worth doing or worth exploring require an investment of time. Really valuable things like acquiring a second language or learning to play an instrument, falling in love with someone or something like these are like bottomless human experiences. Like you're not going to get to the end of the thing. And if the thing is valuable, then it's also capacious. Like it can hold all of the time you throw at it. Language learning is like that. Certainly the experience of like when these things are at their best, like they can be just extremely absorbing and they can hold all of the time and interest and energy and emotion that you're willing to put into them. And I worked pretty hard in my Chinese, especially at the beginning, but sometimes I waste time. What? Like I'll watch like stupid videos on YouTube. Did you hear that people do this? I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, they do this. It's the worst. (laughs) They waste time on the internet or on social media. Like, and of course I do that because we all do that. So I suppose if I could have done it over again, I would have less distracting, unfulfilling hobbies and I just would have worked harder mm. because then I could be reading books by like Mo Yan mm-hmm. or something or Lu Xun instead of the, you know, simpler but fulfilling literary fare that I'm currently dealing with. Well, what advice would you give to someone who's learning Chinese right now? Yeah, okay, so... If it matters to you, then like spend more time at it. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, as you get better at it, you're going to enjoy it more, right? I think environment hacks are useful. So like to give a few examples, when you're ready, like change the language on your telephone or laptop operating system to Chinese. That brings its own fun adventures. Yeah. All of this software, everything is in Chinese. So for me, there's like no escape from it. I have to use it. And I've been doing that for a long time, which really helped. Also great for learning important words in your field. Another thing is, I guess our listeners won't see this, but you can see this. Like I have a saxophone on the table in my office behind me. And before the podcast started, I was just, I was practicing. Uh When I'm in my office, I'm surrounded by musical instruments. When I'm at home, I have a whole bunch of other saxophones. What happens is like when I'm doing things that I need to do, but I'm not particularly interested in, like, you know, writing emails or something, oftentimes what I'll do, I have a keyboard like right next to me. Sometimes I'll take out like a saxophone and put it next to me, like on a stand within reach. I can just grab it and lay when I'm tired of doing this really boring thing. And it turns out that it's not just the amount, like the absolute number of hours that you throw at something that allows you to improve, but it's also like the frequency with which you engage. Having a saxophone at hand increases the probability that I will practice the saxophone. That's true. And if there's a saxophone with me wherever I go, then that increases that too. So like how I would see that applied to language learning. Okay, so I prefer to read books on paper. So I buy paperbacks or hardcovers from Jingdong or like Taobao or something, usually Jingdong. If I'm like, oh, I want to read, like I'm wasting too much time on Facebook or whatever, right? Take my stupid cell phone, which is usually in my pocket, and I put it in my backpack mm-hmm. you know, where I can't reach it. And then I have like a book that's in my hand and I'll walk with it. And what will happen is I'll start to read the book. If you can be in China learning Chinese, that's probably good, right? If you're not living in China and you want to learn to speak the language, like you need to spend some time with the people who actually speak the language you're trying to learn. Not just because it's good like language, but it's just a it's just a really great human thing to do. Like to spend time with people from other cultures and learn from them and share your experiences with them and like that. It's just such a beautiful thing. So in my view, that would be another kind of like environment hack. Right. <laughs> it would just be like if you want to learn to communicate in Chinese, like you need to be around People who speak the language. That makes a lot of sense. If if you're around other Chinese speakers, then you're going to have opportunities to speak. Well, Murray, I really appreciate you taking the time here to share your experience and your perspective with us. If people want to find out a little bit more, maybe about the bands you've been in or some of the work you're doing, where can they find you? My personal website's murrayjames.net. I guess for those of you who are on WeChat... I have a Chinese public WeChat account. It is Dami, like Lao Shu, Dami, Dami, like rice. Dami, 
yeah, if you are in Shanghai, come out. There's a lot of performances, and musicians are cool and approachable. So come say hi. It'd be nice to meet you. Well, thanks so much. This has been a lot of fun. I appreciate it. All right. You're welcome. Thank you. You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousins, politician, writer, designer, farmer, tailor, therapist, waiter, and that one guy named Phil. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please write us a review so we know how we're doing. You can find us on Facebook and at mannercompanion.com or tag us on social media, hashtag mannercompanion. Apologies to John Cena, we just ran out of time. You Can Learn Chinese Podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner, and our editor is Kaiser Guo. And I'd like to thank our special guest, Murray James Morrison. Of course, thanks for our cameo with Kaiser as well. And of course, my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Pastor. See you next time.